0: Hey guys, welcome to LifeBridge's Sermon Audio Podcast. If you want to watch the full Sunday sermon with video, you can check out our LifeBridge YouTube page, or you can go to our Facebook page. Otherwise, if you like the audio format, then make sure to check out our other sermons on this SoundCloud page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Guys, great to be with you this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, which is where we'll be reading from today. Our passage for the morning will be 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And as we do every week at LifeBridge, if you're able, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We stand as a sign of Respect for the Word of God, acknowledging that it comes from Him. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin, because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge as we do each week that the words you've delivered to us in the Bible are not simply the result of human writing, but they were breathed out by you, which means they carry your authority to shape our lives, to shape our faith, to teach us what we might believe, and teach us how we might serve you the way that you deserve. In it, Lord, you reveal to us your law and your ways and your character, and we ask today that you would reveal to us more about who you are and what you've done for us in Christ, so that we might be amazed and give you the glory that you deserve. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today we celebrate the fourth Sunday of a season that we refer to each year as Advent. The church sets aside a period of time in each calendar year in which we remember and recognize that God came to earth as a man. That's the miracle of Christmas. We don't just celebrate a man named Jesus because he was a popular teacher or a popular celebrity in his day. We celebrate the coming of Jesus because he was God in the flesh, that in Christ, in some mysterious and supernatural way, God truly had come in the form of a child to dwell among us and come on a mission to save humanity from their sins. And we call this season Advent because Advent is a Latin word that means arrival. So we celebrate Jesus' Advent, his arrival, and it actually comes from two pieces of different Latin words, one meaning to come and one meaning to too. it means to come toward or to be in a movement toward someone or something. So the advent of Jesus was God coming toward his creation, him decreasing the distance between himself and his creatures to come and be with us and among us. And the church for 2,000 years has celebrated this, rightly so, as a miracle, that God would come to us and just as we sang, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. Advent is coming to us so Jesus might be with us. In our passage today, John is talking about the advent and arrival of Jesus. He just uses a couple of different words. The first word that he uses in verse two is he describes Jesus's coming as an appearance, as in Jesus appeared among us. Think about a character coming out on stage in the middle of a drama or a play in which suddenly a new character arrives. And that's essentially how John describes it, that Jesus appeared as though the curtain was moved back and Jesus comes onto the stage of human history. But the other word that he uses, and you'll note it in verses 5 and verse 8, and this is an important word, is he says that the coming of Jesus wasn't just an arrival, it wasn't just an appearance. This word is important. He says that in Christ, the Son of God was revealed. And this is huge. What he's saying is that Jesus wasn't just coming to physically be among us, it wasn't just a miracle of proximity, but it was a miracle of revelation. God was showing us something about himself. There were things that were not previously known that now, because Jesus came, can be known. The the meaning of this word is almost like the unveiling of a finished work of art when the artist has completed it and brings it into the gallery and pulls down for the first time his work of art to be seen by all. Or maybe another way to think about it, is like finally the solution to an unsolved mystery that's gone on for ages, and suddenly the solution becomes clear. There was a mystery in all of creation as to how God would solve the problem of human sin, and in Jesus, the solution to the mystery has been revealed. And while the solution was promised for centuries. In fact, the last prediction of Jesus' coming was written in the prophets 400 years before his birth. The exact circumstances were not known, and so the people of Israel waited for a Savior to come. I think about it this way. This weekend, uh, as many of you will be, we are hosting my family at our home for Christmas Eve, which means that over the last few days, Shauna and I have been doing prep work in the kitchen, getting the house ready, starting to cook, and do all of that stuff. And because it couldn't possibly happen any other way, yesterday morning, our dishwasher broke. (laughs) Okay? It it just... I don't know why this happens. Yesterday morning, of all days... You know, if you have kids, there's just days. Okay? Within the span of about 20 minutes, our dishwasher broke, a glass got smashed on the floor, a curtain rod got ripped out of the wall. And I'm thinking, really? It's just life, I guess, at home. Now, in and of itself, the dishwasher breaking is not a big deal. I mean, we can, because we're high-character people, we can take it on ourselves to suffer through washing dishes by hand. Uh, You know, it was really more of an inconvenience or an annoyance, but in a miracle of modern logistics, we were able to find the replacement parts on Amazon with same-day shipping. Praise the Lord. And we got this screen, which you guys will will know if you've ever looked at your order details on Amazon, and you all have because, uh, of course, we're impatient and we can't possibly wait for the package to arrive. So we need to constantly check the shipping status. And if you check your shipping status, you'll see on there when it's out for delivery, it'll say arriving by 10 o'clock p.m. So yesterday I watched as our dishwasher parts (coughs) said all day arriving by 10 o'clock p.m. So at 9 o'clock last night, Rather than working on my sermon and touching it up for today, I'm standing at the front door, peeking out the window, waiting to see that beautiful blue smiley face pull up in front of our home to deliver our dishwasher parts, and thankfully, uh, as we prayed they would, they arrived, and uh, there was a bit of suspense because, of course, when you're fixing anything at home, you can just picture it, the part arrives, and of course... You get the wrong part, okay, or something like that. But praise the Lord, it was the right part. We got it fixed. And so we were waiting all day in anticipation, even though we did not know when the promised item would arrive, and we were hoping that it would truly be the part we needed and would be the solution that we had waited for. And in a small way, I think that that captures some of what was being revealed in Jesus, that there was a shipping notification, that the Savior was going to arrive, there was going to be a Messiah, one who would take away his people's sins and redeem them from darkness and liberate them from their oppressors and bring them into freedom. The only problem is there were no shipping updates. Okay? And so the people are waiting 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, 400 years, and all of a sudden it's over four centuries since God has made a promise and there's been no updates, no signals broadcast giving any progress on when the shipment is going to arrive. So no one knew the timing and the circumstances of his coming, Even though among the nation of Israel there were faithful people who knew God's promises and they held on to them, expecting God to send a Savior, they had no idea when he would arrive or what his coming would look like. And what a crazy thing to think about then that in the most unforeseen way possible he shows up as a child in the backwoods of Palestine in a manger. So in one sense, what was being revealed in Christ's coming was God's plan, the nature of his plan, and the surprising plans that he had made to send Jesus. But the other thing that was being revealed, or the other way that we could understand the word revealing, is that the word means something invisible becoming visible. So when something is revealed, something that previously was not visible becomes visible. And so what was happening in Jesus wasn't just the revealing of God's plan, but all of the invisible things about God, his attributes and his nature were becoming visible, meaning God was putting on a visible human face to reveal to the world who he was in the truest, most accurate possible fashion, which is why Jesus said in John fourteen nine, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. So no one's ever seen God face to face, but in Christ, God put on human flesh and a human personality and a human identity so we could behold him in a relatable and understandable and glorious way. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God. The miracle of Advent is Jesus taking on human form to make invisible realities of God's love and his character and his mercy and his integrity all become visible so that we can see it with our own two eyes. Jesus reveals the nature of God. He was revealed to us. And in our text today, what we read from John is three important reasons why this Son of God was revealed. So we'll notice this together. We'll work through it today in the passage. Three reasons why the Son of God was revealed to us. So why would we celebrate that God chose to reveal himself the way that he did each and every Advent season? Well, the first reason why the Son of God was revealed we find in verse 1 of our passage today in which the Apostle John says, See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. See what great love for us the Father has. Now, if you were to read this in a literal translation, it's worded in kind of a funny fashion because it literally reads, See from where this love has come. Essentially, See from where the love the Father has. He's making the point that God loves us in a way that couldn't possibly be part of this world, that God has loved us with a foreign, otherworldly love. It's not like any sort of love we find here. John is looking at what God has done for us in Jesus in saying that's some sort of supernatural, outside this universe, cosmically, otherworldly type love because you don't find that kind of love here among us. It's so different and counterintuitive. And the love of God is, it's different and unique. God does not love as we think of love. Because we have an idea of what we think love is. We like to define it for ourselves. But God's love is unique. It's greater. It's unique because it's sacrificial. It's unique because it's generous. And most importantly, it's unique because it's completely unconditional. The love of God is never given with strings attached. It's costly, it's sacrificial, because Christ gives himself for us, taking our place on the cross and paying the penalty of our sins as a substitute. It's unique because it's generous, because he gives and gives and gives of himself, expecting nothing in return, and it's unconditional because you don't have to do anything to get it. All you have to do is receive it. God's love is given without any expectation of earning it or meriting it. It is unconditional. Now, some will argue, okay, not so fast. You're saying it's unconditional, but the Bible says you've got to have faith to receive it. How can that work? You're saying I have to do something? God just loves me for who I am. If he loves me unconditional, then why should I have to do anything at all? Well, because even unconditional love can require a response. Here's the difference. Unconditional doesn't mean you don't have to respond. Unconditional describes you don't have to do anything to earn it. God's decision to love you precedes your decision to do anything for him. That's what unconditional means. Your works do not impact his motivation. You cannot entice him to love you more or discourage him to love you less by your own actions or merits. God's motivation in demonstrating his love for you. The reason that he chose to send his love is purely out of motivation for his glory and your good. It is an overwhelming act of sacrificial love that's completely independent of any decision that we make. I like to think about it this way, someone, and in fact some of you will experience this this weekend, imagine someone invites you over for dinner. And they cook you an absolutely phenomenal meal. Now, you can use your imagination to kind of fill in the blanks here and just imagine what that looks like to you. So, we're talking multiple courses of food, which means for me, I'm thinking the whole deal. I'm thinking charcuterie board, okay, appetizers, steak dinner. I love charcuterie boards, by the way, because it's just a fancy way to say we like meat and cheese, okay? I, it's a great tradition. I love it. Okay, so I'm thinking the whole deal charcuterie board, appetizer, steak dinner, multiple dessert options. Now, here's the deal. In order to enjoy that meal, you need to respond to the act of generosity which provided the meal for you. Okay? The meal was provided for you without condition. Someone wanted to cook for you, but consuming it will require you to put in effort in order to enjoy it because it will be hard for you to enjoy the meal if you won't lift your fork and open your mouth. Think about how absurd it would be to go to someone's house and they say, I cooked for you. We just wanted to bless your family. We've been cooking all day. We're so excited to have you. And as you sit down, you cross your arms and begin to get offended that they won't spoon feed you. (laughs) If you really loved me, okay? If this was really something you did out of unconditional love for me, then why would you make me feed myself? How dare you? Your love comes with strings attached Right? You could see how absurd and ridiculous that would be. That person lavished you with a feast to be enjoyed, but you're going to miss out and not experience it because you don't want to do the work to receive it and to accept it. That's ludicrous. It would be even stupider if you said, well, you must not be a very good friend because I have to feed myself when I'm here. Okay? See, what made it unconditional is that before you ever arrived, they made a decision out of a motivation of love, that they wanted to bless you and took the initiative to call and invite you. They put in the labor of love before your arrival. They did the work to prepare a feast to fill you and bring you satisfaction and joy because it was their desire to show you hospitality in their home and at their table, but enjoying it always requires a response. In the same way, God has prepared for you in Christ a feast Of all the things that we celebrate at Advent, we light the candles which represent hope, joy, peace, light. God's prepared all of it for you if we'll receive it, if we will open up our hearts to consume Christ as God's provided sacrifice. See, enjoying what God has lavished on us, God has lavished his love upon us in Christ, but it involves a response. We must trust him. Psalm 81 verse 10 actually describes it in a similar way to what we described in which the Lord says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will it. When we come to God to seek satisfaction, when we come to him to seek strength, when we come to him to seek the love we we're created to experience, he will always provide it, but it's on us to receive it, to open up and to accept what he's provided. So Jesus comes to lavish otherworldly love on the people of God, those who would receive it. Secondly, he comes to remove sins by his own sinlessness. If you direct your attention To verse 5, the apostle says, you know that he was revealed, so that. Whenever you see a therefore or a so that in scripture, it's important, he says, so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in Him. Now, the Bible uses the word sin in two different ways. It describes sin on the one hand, and sins. Okay, sins are things that we do wrong when we commit infractions or transgressions against the law of God. God has an eternal law, which which we know ten of them very well. But God's word is. Filled with requirements that represent his moral law for his creatures and when we transgress or cross those boundaries that's called a sin that god tells us what is right and we either do what he says is wrong or we fail to do what is right those are sins or transgressions and each of us as a result because we've all fallen short have a record of transgressions and debts that we have committed against a holy god that's sins But the Bible talks about sin as a powerful force of darkness that keeps humanity in bondage by keeping them trapped in the repeating cycle of their sins. Sins are a behavior. Sin is a condition of the soul by which our fallen natures enslave us to our own desires so that we cannot stop committing sins. We commit sins because of the problem of sin within our souls. Jesus is God's solution to both problems because he comes to take away our sins, and the Bible tells us the reason he's able to do so is because in him there is no sin. He's perfectly pure. He's perfectly righteous. There is no power of sin in him, so that's why he can take away sins. So Jesus frees people from sin and also takes away sins. In fact, scripture describes him in this passage as one who removes, like a stain remover, the stain of our sins from us, fulfilling what the Bible says in Psalm 103 verse 8, which says this, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. Pay attention to this next verse, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions and our sins from us. There's the good news of the gospel. If you are in Christ, not only has Jesus broken the power of sin to control you, to condemn you, to keep you in slavery and chains, but he has taken away your sins, which means that like the most powerful detergent, his blood has made you clean, not in a temporary way, but in a lasting way. And the reason he's able to do this, John says that anyone who hopes in him is pure as he is pure himself. The reason Jesus can do that is because he is absolutely, completely pure. So much so that when Jesus comes into contact with our sin, what happens when we open our hearts to him to receive him and accept his work on the cross? When he comes in contact with our sin, our sin doesn't corrupt or stain him, but our stains become clean with his purity in such a way that we can no longer be stained again. He makes us everlastingly clean so that in a mysterious way, even as we continue to struggle and fail to keep his commands because we're imperfect and we're flawed and we're being sanctified, that even the record of our sins and our stains do not stick to us any longer. That is how pure the purity of Jesus is. That's why he can promise, and what a promise. Anyone who hopes in him is pure Catch this, not just made pure like pure to us, made pure as he is pure. What a promise. Unless we think huh, that there are some sins that are just too deep, too deep of a stain to be removed, Jesus' ability to remove our sin doesn't depend on the nature of the stain, it depends on the power of the detergent. Are you tracking with me this morning? We think that certain sins are just too deep of stains. There's no way we'll be able to get them out. But the power of our sin isn't what determines whether we can be forgiven. It's the power of what's provided to pay for our sin. And what's provided to pay for our sin is the pure and precious blood of a spotless Savior named Jesus, which means that he can make a promise to us that says anyone who hopes in him, can be made pure that's universal that doesn't mean anyone except you in the corner because we heard what you did right it's not anyone except that thing you did when you were younger it's not anyone except you sometimes struggle to keep god's commands, so maybe not you you notice how we tend to put disclaimers on the promises of god final universal complete anyone who hopes in him is pure because he is pure That's why we as Christians can demonstrate a love that covers sin and shows forgiveness to the undeserved. As you gather with your families this weekend, you may be in close community with sinners towards whom forgiveness in grace may feel undeserved. Why can we as believers cover them with grace and mercy? Because we have a pure and spotless Savior who's done the same. For us. So Jesus came to lavish otherworldly love upon the children of God. He came to remove our sins by His own sinlessness. And lastly, and my favorite, He came to destroy the works of the devil. Pay attention to verse 8, in which we're told this The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Now, don't get lost in all the singing about cute babies at Christmas. Don't get lost in all the singing about silent nights and sweet peace. When Jesus came, yes, he came as a child. Yes, he came meek and humble and small, but he came to ride forth on the warpath. Because he came to do war against the devil and destroy his works. To use Jesus' words, he came to rob the devil's house and tie him up. He came on a mission of divine warfare to take all the things that darkness had built into our world and to rip them out down to the roots. But if we say he came to destroy the devil's works, what are the devil's works? Well, he tells us the devil's work is sin and sin is lawlessness. The devil's work in our world is lawlessness. It's to say no to what God has said. Wherever people say no to what God has said is right, that's lawlessness. That's sin. It's becoming a law unto ourselves. That's the nature of sin. When someone sins, here's the picture that the Bible gives. It's not just about a bad behavior God isn't an eternal scorekeeper that says, well, when you mess up, that's just such a big deal to me that you're not perfect, I can't accept imperfection, okay? The reason sin is a big deal is because when someone sins, what they're saying is, you don't know best, what you've said is right, I don't care, I'm going to do what I think is right instead. That is the nature of sin, See, sin isn't just doing your best and being a little off the mark. When we sin, we transgress against God's law and say, your law is not right for me, so I'm going to be a law unto myself. And when we do that, John says the relationship is clear. You're acting just like the person you belong to. Because the person who acts like that is Satan himself. He's the father of lawlessness and sin. Because why? What what was his first act of sin? It was to rebel against what God had said and to take upon himself authority and glory." he is a stealer of glory. That's his defining work. That's his family occupation. See, in some families, there are occupations that are handed down between generations. Maybe a family business. Maybe it's that grandpa opened the deli on the corner of Main and 3rd, and that's what you do in the family, is you work at the family business, and it was handed down generation to generation. Now, I'm just making that up. My grandpa didn't own a deli. Okay? Uh, It would have been great if he did. But, uh, or maybe in some families, it's that dad was a dentist, so the son's going to dental school to follow in his footsteps. Children live out what's handed down to them. They show who they belong to by how they live. And in the same way, we show spiritually who we've been raised by and who we belong to by how we live. John says when someone does what's right according to God's word, when they live a life of righteousness, it shows they belong to God. Now, catch the difference. It doesn't say that when they do what's right, they earn their place with God, but they show that they already belong to God. But he goes on to say when we do evil, when we commit sin, We show we belong to the enemy. And the family business of the enemy is stealing glory for ourselves. It's what humanity does. We take glory for ourselves. Now, we tend to think that sin is some big thing out there. It's something outside of us, but it's something that happens in here when we take God's glory for ourselves. I think about it this way. As good patriotic Americans, we believe that certain things are just intrinsic to our life. Uh, We have certain God-given rights that everyone, for example, should have the right to life, the right to some basic freedoms, the right to pursue a fulfilling life in the sight of God without government interference. And then one thing that's been fundamental in our society is that each person should have the right to own, protect, and defend what is rightfully theirs. That's a basic societal principle that we've accepted. They're called property rights, which makes it wrong for any man or woman to take for themselves what rightfully belongs to another. Now, this isn't an idea that we came up with, okay? Like it or not, and whether it causes people to kick and scream or not, the principles that we have in place in our society are all borrowed from the Christian scriptures because God was talking about property rights in his law all the way back in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. We've accepted as believers what God's law says, that when someone takes what rightfully belongs to another, that's theft. And when someone does that, it makes them a thief. In almost every culture in human history, because God's word is written on the human heart, has been able to say very clearly, that's wrong. Oh, what does that have to do with Christmas? Well, because Jesus came to undo the devil's work the devil's work is sin. Sin is being a glory thief. It's stealing God's glory for ourselves, just as Satan's sin was to take God's glory for himself and make himself God. See, when we sin, we become glory thieves. We put ourselves in charge of the decisions about what should be right and wrong. Paul Tripp said this, in our quest to be God, sin causes us to forget God. It reduces us all to glory thieves, taking for ourselves the glory that belongs to him. All of this means that sin causes us to step over God's wise boundaries in thought, desire, word, and action again and again. That is what's natural for a sinner. And in a world full of glory thievery, what that leads to is brokenness, it leads to pain. It leads to corruption in our world. And Jesus comes to undo all of it. The question is how? Now we would imagine for creatures that have had the nerve to steal God's glory for themselves that he would come and he would execute justice. That the only behavior appropriate for that or the only response appropriate would be for him to come and punish those who steal the Father's glory. The beauty of the gospel and what we celebrate as Advent is that Jesus didn't come to kill sinners who steal God's glory, but instead to make them sons of God and daughters of God for his glory the gospel that we celebrate at Christmas is that Jesus undoes the devil's work. He does war against the darkness not by destroying sinners but by giving himself up in love to redeem sinners, thereby taking those who steal God's glory and making them God's children for his glory. See, God's way to destroy the enemy's work is to take thieves and make them children. That's why John can, use, can say to us, that is what we are. Can you believe it? We offended him. We did everything that he said not to do. We have rejected his authority, and yet, in love, he sent Jesus so we might be his, so we could be adopted into his family, and that's what we are. Jesus makes it possible for us to be completely transformed from glory thieves into a new creation, to be recreated and renewed within, to be made unchangingly good, See, grace awakens the love of God in us and gives us the power to do what we couldn't do. That's why he says that now in Christ we can be made righteous and can live now for God rather than trapped in our desires. Jesus came to do war against the darkness. And the way we join him in that battle is not to fight the battle against everyone out there, but to trust in Christ and allow him to make us new in here. Let me end with this, because I love the promise that God gives us in his word. Everyone who has this hope, this hope of being born again, this hope of being remade, this hope of being renewed and forgiven and freed in Christ, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What a promise. As I was reflecting on that this week, I was thinking of all these characters that show up in the story of Jesus in Luke chapters 1 and 2. I love this. You meet all these random characters who you never hear from before and you never hear from after. And they're the most insignificant, random people that you can ever imagine, okay? Uh, These people are nobodies who lived in ancient Palestine, like the backwoods of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. And as I was thinking about this promise, about hoping in Christ and being purified by hope, I just was asking, can you imagine for these people, what hope did they have? Put yourself in their place. What hope did these people have? Okay, they're in ag- agrarian society 2,000 years ago, living under imperial rule in a world that's dangerous and unsafe. Here's the types of things that they would have hoped in. You hoped for a good year of crops so that your countrymen and your family didn't die. You hoped that your children would make it to adulthood, which is pretty rare in the ancient world. The average life expectancy was about 40 years old, so you're hoping to live a good long life by making it to like 45, okay? At this point, God hasn't sent a prophet in over 400 years. You're starting to wonder, has the promises of God failed? Did they even matter? Was that all made up? Is there any point in believing it anymore? Your country is controlled by an oppressive empire that's the strongest the world has ever seen. You don't have any hope. You have about as much hope as a crab in a boiling pot, okay? Okay? which is not very much hope. And in the middle of this, we meet two extremely important, unimportant, ordinary, faithful people. Okay, one of them is named Simeon. He's an old man that Luke says has lived in Jerusalem who claims he's had a communication from the Lord that he's going to see the Messiah someday. And I just imagine what other people would have said to him. Yeah, okay, buddy, it's been 400 years. I'm sure you're going to be the one. (laughs) Yeah, okay, buddy. All right? You would go around the street corner with your buddy and say, I don't know what old Simeon's been smoking, but it must be some powerful stuff. He says he's had dreams. I'm sure he has. We meet another character named Anna, who's an 84-year-old widow who never left the temple. Her husband died. She spends all day at the temple. She prophesies, and she prays. That's what she does. Luke says that's all she does. She doesn't go home. And I'm sure the people at the temple would say, what are you doing? Go home already. Go take up a hobby. Learn to weave baskets or something. Like, go do something, okay? But instead, she just spends all day at the temple. And what we see in them is they had all their eggs in one basket. They had nothing to hope in except one thing, this crazy, illogical hope that maybe, just maybe, the promises of God were real. And they would live just long enough to see them be fulfilled. They had this far-fetched hope that maybe God was the type of God who does what he says. And to everyone else, they looked like fools because they had put all their hope in this one Hail Mary shot. And I'm sure they did look like fools until one day a young married couple shows up with a baby in their arms at the temple. And suddenly, Simeon takes that child in his arms and says, Now your servant can depart in peace for my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. Now Anna can prophesy that this is the day. Now they don't look like fools because they had hope in the one who was coming. John says, for those who trust in Christ, there's going to be a day like that that in this life, you may look like a fool for trusting Jesus. You may look like a fool for saying, I'm going to live my life according to what he says, according, rather than what I think, because I think that there's a pretty good chance that he may end up being right, and I may really have to stand before him someday. I think it's worth it to live for him. John says, for people with that sort of hope, on that day, when he comes again, everyone who hopes in him, Purifies himself as he is pure, because on that day, no one who hopes in him will be put to shame. My friends, my invitation to you today is very simple. If you've never trusted in Christ, there is no better place to put your hope. If you've trusted in him already, then let this advent be a season of renewing your hope in him and remembering this Jesus that's been sent to us is coming again. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Lord, we thank you that we can look and see in your word that those who hope in you are not put to shame. It was true at your first coming, and it will be true again at Jesus' second coming. We profess as a matter of faith that we know there is one day when he will return to judge the living and the dead. And so, Lord, we recognize that we have no hope beside you. Today, Lord, by your Spirit, would you deepen our trust in you. For those who don't know you, would you awaken in them and in their hearts a sensitivity to your Spirit that they might be born again and trust you in faith. And as we prepare for the communion table today and come to celebrate and praise you again, we pray that you would unite our hearts to one another. And unite us to your heart as well. For your glory in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.